Well, you'd, you'd think that after 25 episodes and dozens and dozens of hours of recording audio with one another, we'd figure out how to record it properly, but you'd be wrong. <laughs> well, I mean, in our defense, we're using a substantial amount of different equipment. We're, we're upgrading our situation and we're learning in the process, but... I actually downgraded. I actually went with a, a cheaper <laughs> mic and a hand-me-down digital recorder, so... Um, well, we're regrading yeah. in, in different directions. But uh, the net result is this episode, our audio quality is not as smooth and consistent as we want it to be. But uh, we're just going to put out the episode anyway because we need to put out an episode and we feel good about the material. Yeah. I think it sounds fine. And Joe's just a perfectionist. Uh, anyway. <laughs> All right, welcome to Zero Sum Empire, the podcast that's taking a critical census of the roughly 640 mostly anonymous American billionaires. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, I'm Chad. And I'm Joe. And we're really happy that you're here with us. This is our 26th episode. Not really an important number. Should I not have said anything about it? No, I, I mean, yeah, like 25 is <laughs> kind of a... I don't... Okay, well... I guess what's the next milestone? It's really not till 50. I mean, once, you know... That's the next, I guess next so. time. It's a long road. Yeah. <laughs> We're only halfway just... to our next celebration. <laughs> oh my God. It's going to be like three years from now. Uh, <laughs> I guess the only thing that we should report is that last episode, we promised that we'd have our first guest on the episode, but that was untrue. And, and it's not because uh, they canceled or we couldn't book them. It was because. <laughs> <laughs> no, it had nothing to do with the guest. Yeah, uh, we failed And everything to, to do with us. Yeah. Um, life got in the way. You know, we'll get there. I don't know if people are clamoring for a format change anyway, you know? No one is, no one knows, no one cares. <laughs> Do you care? Yeah. <laughs> is anyone listening? I like to keep, I like to keep, I like to keep <laughs> things spicy and, uh, you know, change up things uh, here and there. I think that's it as far as the just nonsense updates goes. All right. Unless there's anything else I'm forgetting. Yeah, let's do the news. All right, let's do the news. Billionaires in the news. I don't know when this is going to come out, but there's only one thing happening really in the world right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At least that's how I feel. I know. We yeah, actually I, have I, two I, things. We're going to we're going to talk about two things, a little bit about the Sacklers, but I don't know. If you're like me, you've been rather preoccupied with the fact that our president just contracted COVID-19. I can't stop watching. I know. Well, I've noticed this about you. That's what I was, I was talking to you about this before the show. I didn't like, uh, I didn't specify what I meant that I've noticed uh, a change in your mood. Uh, it seems like you've gotten really <laughs> obsessed with the news and uh, you, you've, you've been in kind of a darker mood lately. Well, I don't know if I can draw a relationship between my mood and the news this week. It's just been, <laughs> it's just been fascinating though. I definitely yeah. have been watching more than I usually do. And I'll tune out of the news more probably than you do, Chad, uh, most weeks, but just because it's such a historic moment and because all of this crazy drama is unfolding in real time and you can sit there and, and sort of try to make sense of what's true and what's not as things are sort of 
bubbling to the surface. You know, I mean, it's not like we're learning anything new about the administration or I'm having any sort of big time re- revelations. It's more just like a little game, you know, like a little <laughs> mystery. <laughs> you know? It's like, all right, well, we know this, we don't know that, but we know that they behave like this. And in all likelihood, this is the case. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I think pretty much everybody who's watching the news regularly right now is doing something like that. Yeah. It sounds like you're a little bit fascinated by the like the the network of influence or of contagion, uh, the vectors of contagion, right? That that led to the situation that they find themselves in. I'm sort of interested in that, but I'm more interested in the communication strategy of the administration. <laughs> yeah. Did you see what happened immediately before we sat down to record the segment? Uh, that he did a little drive-by. Oh yeah, I saw that. And that wasn't immediately. That was like three hours ago. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's a lifetime now, but like, like how did that look to you? Did that look good? And, uh, no, it didn't look good. <laughs> confidence inspiring and like make them look strong and normal. That was a very weird scene. He was like clawing at the window. He was like, he's like pressing his snout up against the window and clawing it was a at walking it. dead sort of situation. Yeah. He was like a zombie outside of the mall door, like pawing at the window to like, it was, <laughs> I'm extremely healthy. Like, it's like it was who's so making weird. these decisions? Like that, that was a he t- is. That was a t- he's <laughs> making all of them. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's it is what, really. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. The whole thing is crazy. I mean, it, you know, I'm not in the business of making predictions, but if I were pressed, it seems unlikely that he's going to die. There's no way that he's going to take responsibility for his previous positions on masks and distancing and his handling of COVID. There's no way that he is going to admit to the public that he was infected and contagious and in all likelihood knew it while he was engaging with donors and other people. Like it's pretty much 100% established that he knew he was infected when he did the Duluth rally. When was the Duluth rally again? The day after the debate. So yeah, he he almost certainly knew by then. Yeah, yeah. And no. he came and did a super spreader event and, uh, and then he's like, catch y'all later. <laughs> Enjoy the COVID. I uh, mean, it's, it's, it's astonishing. Yeah. So you want to talk a little bit about this Sackler case? I know we've talked about it on the show before and it's horrible, but there's a new wrinkle in it this week that is worth at least touching on probably. Yeah, uh, I guess. I mean, it's not something that's been resolved yet. Uh, and maybe you can fill me in here because I just sort of saw this before we uh, started recording. Uh, but uh, basically, the Sackler family, who, of course, we know uh, from such hits as uh, OxyContin, is in big trouble uh, for basically creating the opioid epidemic along with other pharmaceutical companies uh, in the United States. We all know who they are. They uh, they uh, are the subject of a recent New Yorker article because they're currently lobbying the Justice Department to uh, avoid tarnishing the good name of the Sacklers any further. They're working out a deal, yeah. basically, where they get to keep a ton of money yeah. and ultimately can't get prosecuted. Is that the super... Cliff yes. Notes version yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, Which is bad. I mean, it's bad. I mean, the level of horror that the Sacklers have wrought uh, across our nation. Uh, that was actually a very surprising thing that I hadn't heard before in the article uh, was uh, 
Uh, it's not hyperbolic and it's not speculative to say that the Sackler family has rot have it rot. What you, what's the phrase you use? I said rot horror. Hor- Is that yeah. okay? Okay, that's Can great. That? They've rot horror uh, all across the United States. Uh, there, there has been a large empirical study to demonstrate that it is uh, quantifiable. In fact, but. Uh, <laughs> Um, uh, I'll read a quick quote from the article. Uh, It said, uh, a recent study by a team of economists from the Wharton School, Notre Dame, and Rand. It's like economists from the Wharton School and Rand. I mean, that's kind of raising some red flags. Nevertheless, uh, reviewed overdose statistics (laughs) in five states where Purdue opted because of local regulations uh, to concentrate fewer resources in promoting its drug. The scholars found that in those states, overdose rates, even from heroin and fentanyl, uh, are markedly lower than in states where Purdue did the full marketing push. The study concludes it's just amazing that the introduction of mar- the introduction and marketing of OxyContin explain a substantial share of overdose deaths over the last two decades. Right, so, so they have control groups. Right, they have states where the Sackler family was not able to operationalize its marketing apparatus uh, and you know do this full court press uh, to push. Oxycontin. And surprise, surprise, in those areas, <laughs> the overdose deaths were way lower. I mean, this is also what happens in the Trump administration when things are too crazy to keep up with. And it keeps on like escalating and escalating and escalating to the point where I can't like not pay attention. Meanwhile, they're working backstage yeah. <laughs> to like yeah. let the Sacklers off the hook, you know, like things that we should be paying attention to. We can't because the circus is so mesmerizing. They're flooding the zone. I mean, that's the the classic strategy. My billionaire is named Robert Rowling. Does it go by Bob? Spelled, I don't know. Spelled R-O-W-L-I-N-G. Excellent. And um, he is the founder of TRT Holdings, a private holding company. What does TRT stand for? Yeah, I don't know what TRT stands for, man. But uh, what I do know (laughs) is that it is a holding company and it owns Gold's Gym. Omni Hotels oh, and yeah. Resorts, and the Tana Exploration Company, an independent oil and gas company, among a bunch of other things. But those are some of the biggest yeah, it's assets. It's kind of a diverse portfolio. Yeah, it's kind of a weird portfolio. Gym, oil. Yep. So they got some things going on. But I mean, Robert Rowling, he's, he's another one of these billionaires who really makes you feel like you're living in an 8-bit computer simulation. <laughs> just like, uh, Why? just, I mean, just like think, I'll send you a picture of him. Think normal American billionaire. And then you basically understand who you're dealing with already. I'm going to guess gray hair, uh, white guy. Oh my God. I was right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. He looks a little bit like Jimmy Stewart. Mm, a little bit, maybe a little bit more than your average normal American billionaire, but he's, you know, white, straight, male. 67 years old, media shy, big time Republican mover and shaker in Texas, Mm. heir to an oil and gas fortune. 
You know, I mean, that just seems air. So, okay. He's pretty cookie cutter. Well, I mean, he, I guess he wasn't born rich. Somehow his dad struck it rich in the oil and gas game <laughs> mid career. I wasn't born rich. I was just raised well, rich. Well, he tells the story, <laughs> kind of. I mean, well, he tells the story in, in like one of the few videos you can find online about his dad losing his job when he was young and having this memory of seeing his dad with his mom at the kitchen counter having a fight or struggling, trying to figure out how, how they were going to pay bills while balancing a checkbook and having the thought, I never want to be in that situation. Somehow, by the time like he was in his 20s, his dad was a owned a, a small oil business. Good for him. Glad he worked hard and escaped poverty. Uh, glad. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, I mean, I realize that's not that interesting, but this is a little bit interesting as a sort of aside. In that same video, he describes his his dad talking about the oil business as, quote, the last great treasure hunt. And like that, like stuck with me for a second because it's like a couple of things. One, just one of the main ideas of the show from the beginning is that the idea of meritocracy is just sort of completely absurd. And the reality of so much of what has become modern industrial capitalism is literally the result of treasure hunting, you know, literally the result of just like chaotic people just finding things like, (laughs) yeah, yeah. you can go out into the world and just find riches, you know, and if you find a big enough cache of riches, then you become someone who can make decisions about the entire planet. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it is. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, mean I, I, I get what you're saying, right? Like that it seems almost like without fail that the billionaires that we come across are uh, people who made their fortune not through some sort of uh, genius insight uh, or innovation or something like that, but people who were just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Yeah. They just hit like the spatio-temporal lottery, that's right? A, that's and, a very common uh, theme in the show and listeners from way back when will be tired of hearing us make the same point, but yes. And I, I mean, I guess the other thought that I had when I heard that phrase was that like capitalism itself is sort of the last great treasure hunt <laughs> before the demise of all of life on earth. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Anyway, enough of that. Once his dad struck it rich in the oil game, he was a part of that and had a bunch of money to play with. And he invested in Omni back in the 90s. And then he bought Gold's Gym in the early 2000s. He bought Gold's Gym in the early 2000s. That's not really his heyday. I mean, I I don't really know anything about the gym industry, but... I do remember that Gold's Gym t-shirts were like much bigger in the 90s. Do you remember those being like a thing that people wore? Not really. A lot. It, I think it was a national trend. I don't think it was just a trend in, in the area that I was growing up. I bet there was some 70s nostalgia because, you know, it's like Schwarzenegger was filmed making pumping iron in Gold's Gym. Oh, I didn't know that. Other things worth talking about. He was a big time supporter of Rick Perry, who ultimately appointed him to the <laughs> University of Texas Board of Regents Ugh. in 2004. And he served until 2009 and then stepped down in this moment when the board was facing backlash because they just approved $3 million in bonuses to investment managers in a year where the university investment fund had lost $4.1 billion. 
<laughs> people were like, wait, what? You know, Good job, fellas. Uh, but it's, it's maybe interesting to talk about just for a second. I mean, this was back in 2009 in the aftermath of the financial collapse. And so they actually justified these bonuses on the grounds that other people lost way more. And, it could have know, been worse. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, that's so unusual. Like where else in the economy would you get massively compensated for losing less? it doesn't really make sense i mean you can kind of like begin to like understand their argument it's like okay yeah it's like well if other people were losing like you know 12 billion dollars then it would make sense to give these people a million dollars to prevent that kind of luck it is very interesting you brought up the idea of meritocracy earlier and it's like i thought all of these people really believed in meritocracy you would think that just on principle if they did a bad job, they would refuse. They would refuse maybe their they did a great job, but you still oh, yeah, lost so. four billion dollars, which means everybody else right. lost four billion dollars. Which means, right? Why do you? Where's the money for? <laughs> <laughs> Where is it coming from? Why do you get? Why is it not coming from the same pool? It doesn't add up. So obviously, the business that TRT uh, Holding owns now are getting hit really, really hard by COVID. Gyms. Hotels. And oil. All of the main things that he's invested in. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't, you know, I I don't have a sense of what's going on in the company in any sort of granular way. But I do know that TRT was poised to sell off Gold's Gym back in 2018. And then they they decided against the sale. And I'm sure. Hold on to it. Yeah. He was like, (laughs) I think my position is strong. This is a great time. This is a great time for gyms. Listen to me. I know what I'm talking about. (laughs) I mean, that was what ultimately happened. And I think they called everything off by early 2019. And obviously he's got to be kicking himself over that decision now because most people probably aren't aware. Gold's just declared chapter 11 bankruptcy and are now in the process of a kind of massive restructuring and being bought out by a German fitness company, McFit. So (laughs) (laughs) so within a few months- Too many McRibs? (laughs) Try McFit. (laughs) McFit will be, unless something goes sideways with the deal- McFit will be the new owner of Gold's. Meanwhile, this summer, Omni Hotels and Resorts just received $84 million in PPP loans. So, mm. Not doing super great. Yeah, but just got $84 million of like your money and my money. Oh, sure. I mean, that's great for them. I just imagine that they would have had to prove some sort of distress prior to getting that loan. I don't know even how to make sense of that because obviously, you know, there's a lot of people depending on this hotels and resorts for jobs. And, you know, I, I don't begrudge them a bailout. I just am looking at his net worth. It still seems to be $5 billion and think <laughs> <laughs> he, he could have come up with that $84 million. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. As far as I can tell, when it comes to Robert Rowling, the main thing to talk about is his influence on national politics. Okay. And it's not like super interesting, but he's been a longtime major (laughs) mega donor for the Republican Party. And um, not only a donor himself, but also a facilitator of large donations. And he's a... He's a player. So oh. so back during the George W. era, he was actually what people in the fundraising, political fundraising game call a, quote, bundler. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know what a bundler is? I've heard of bundlers. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I could offer a, 
a, uh, a succinct definition. Uh, but my understanding is uh, that they are, they sort of rally people mm-hmm. uh, at fundraisers or whatever uh, to give money uh, to a particular pack. Is that what a bundler is? Yeah, I think all of that is very on point. I mean, they, they essentially just organize and compile donations of their very rich friends and then deliver it to a candidate or a super PAC uh, yeah. on, a, on a silver platter. They're basically like uh, opinion leaders in their social groups, but like instead of convincing people to listen to an album, they convince them to give $10 million to a fascist. <laughs> yeah, or whatever, or to whoever. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, so a few years ago, he became one of the biggest contributors to the American Crossroads Super PAC, which, Chad, I know you know about because you're a guy who knows about things, but also because your billionaire for this week is also a major donor or maybe the biggest donor to... Well, yeah, so um, that was some information that I came across when researching this guy. Uh, he he was at one point the largest donor to American Crossroads, but now he's the second largest donor to American Crossroads. Uh, Carl Rove's... Is it a super pack or is it a pack or like what well, is, I'm going to talk what, what a little bit of, yeah I'll talk a little bit about it. I mean so American Crossroads itself is a super pack. It was founded by the political strategist Carl Rove and uh former RNC chair Ed Gillespie. Right. And the rise of American Crossroads is sort of an interesting story. Uh it's like Back in April 2010. The good old days. <laughs> yeah, Chad, at the time, I feel like you were probably reading a Gombin and drinking a bunch of Grain Belt. That's that's right about the time we met. Yeah, <laughs> right, in, right in that area. 2009, 2010, yeah. Anyway, the disastrous Citizen United ruling had come down just a, a couple of months before. And there's a, there's a crisis brewing in the Republican establishment. Most people will probably have forgotten this, but... A few weeks before, in I think March of 2010, it emerged that Michael Steele, the RNC chairperson at the time, had been spending lavish sums of RNC money on limos, private jets, and (laughs) more notoriously, uh, bottle service at a lesbian bondage-themed nightclub. (laughs) I find that hard to believe. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, people were raising a lot of eyebrows, and basically Rove was like, we need to seize control from this guy right now. And so he gets a bunch of mega donors together in a room to create what one Rolling Stone article at the time describes as, quote, a shadow version of the RNC for the party's richest donors. Mm. Uh, So the deal with the Citizens United ruling, as I'm sure you and many of our listeners know, is that it gives super PACs permission to receive and spend unlimited amounts of money in an attempt to influence elections, but it prohibits super PACs from coordinating directly with the campaigns themselves. So Rove and Gillespie, who are these like insider right-wing political operatives come in to devise a legal way of being strategic with the super PAC money Mm -hmm. in a way that gives them the best possible chance of winning the election without overtly colluding with the Romney campaign or with other campaigns. 
if that makes sense. I mean, it does make sense, right? Like, but the 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 collaboration law has always made zero sense to me, right? Like, it's such a goofy and and stupid lie. None of these laws make any sense. I'll talk right. a little yeah. bit more about. I mean, they're the just <laughs> like, stupidest. You can just you can be the the um you know the campaign chair for somebody and just tweet out, boy. We really need more presence in the Midwest. Boy, we it would be great to attack this candidate on this thing, right? Like in other words, you can you can send a smoke signal into the infosphere, right? And that that sends as clear a message as you need to send to a super PAC like what it needs to do. And there's nothing that anybody can do about that, the right? The legal like, arguments for all of this stuff are just flat out absurd. And if you put a yeah. little pressure on it. You just will see that every time the ultimate worldview that is guiding these decisions is, well, yes, of course, rich people should determine all decisions yeah, yeah, <laughs> all the yeah, time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's yeah. no. They're rich. <laughs> They're smart. Don't you understand that that's how it works? <laughs> just but but people just keep trying to push it farther and farther. You know, I mean, it's like you might you might think that the Republican establishment at the national level is already as tied in as it could possibly need to be to the corporate interests of our society. But like another way of thinking about American Crossroads and what it was up to is that it was actually like attempting to draw power away from the RNC and consolidate it like more yeah. explicitly under plutocratic control. Which, which, well, which again, yeah, was made possible makes, by Citizens yeah. United. That's really interesting. So preserving that autonomy from collaboration is something that can can often work to a super PAC's advantage, right? Like, so it's not an impediment that they're not allowed to, as they say, collaborate, right, with uh, uh, campaigns on strategy, uh, because they can always do that if they want to, right? They can just send an encrypted text message or tweet something <laughs> yeah, or whatever, right, yeah. right? Like, it's not really an impediment. But it it actually benefits them to be able to distance themselves from the party establishment if it, for instance, wants to argue that John McCain has illegitimate black babies or that, uh, you know, just just engage in some sort of messaging strategy that uh, the RNC doesn't agree with. I think that's exactly right. And it also sort of gives an opportunity for unaffiliated power brokers or people who aren't working yeah, for yeah, campaigns yeah. to leverage many times more amounts of power than they would be able to otherwise. You know, it creates a new power channel that can come in and be filled. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. I mean, that's like, I mean, that's that's the definition of a of an oligarchy, right? Yeah. Like that, yeah. that, that it's it, it provides uh, corporate powers with uh, uh, license to propagandize using the guise of political speech without any, you know, without any sort of friction, it, it, it takes away any sort of friction to that process, right? Like now, now, uh, you know, uh, Pfizer or Exxon uh, are just straightforwardly able to promote their interest in the public sphere under the, under the uh, banner of political speech <laughs> yeah, right. uh, yeah. without having to go through all of this sort of like, machinations uh that require them to disguise that as something else yeah. right or, <laughs> had, or to have to deal with these negotiations with individual candidates who are constantly trying to milk yeah. them for money and they have to like do this dance for influence they just have their own lane yeah. of influence so among these people who gave 
the most back in 2012 was Robert Rowling, who gave uh, $6 million in the, in the run-up to that election. I guess the weird conclusion to this story is that while American Crossroads was very successful at raising money, it wasn't all that successful in achieving its political objectives. So, you know, obviously we all know and remember that Mitt Romney lost that presidential election. But they also fell short in other races, too. Out of the 20 federal candidates they chose to back, only three won. And of all the Hmm. 30 largest spending groups that were a part of that political cycle and donating, American Crossroads had, I think, the second lowest return on their investment. Hmm. It's weird because I feel like I've heard of American Crossroads before now. I know that I have, but I, I wouldn't yeah. have been able to. Well, it's Carl Rove, yeah. Citizens United. It's wrapped up in a whole bunch of very well-known things. But I didn't know that it was not really all that effective. I guess it depends on what your metrics for success are, right? Like if the metric for success is to insert a, a minority opinion, namely the the views of uh, the corporate elite, into American discourse as a normal opinion to hold, right? Like, it, in other words, if it normalizes a a very eccentric point of so view. So it's like the opposite of uh, like a Bernie kind of move? I mean, Bernie is the perfect analog, right? He didn't win. Uh, however, his effect on American political discourse was massive, right? Uh, that it, No, that's, it, a, good, uh, that's a good it, point. That and yeah. and actually, if you look at how things have played out since then, you know maybe yeah maybe they had a lot more success than people gave them credit for in the aftermath of that election. But I mean, it, one one interesting thing to just note is like, well, I mean, do you have any theories about why they tanked so hard in in twenty twelve? My guess would be that uh, the corporate propaganda was maybe a little too a little too tame and a little too Romney-esque for like emerging uh, like Tea Party sentiment, right? Like that uh, that people were hungrier for a more radical, uh, not radical, but a more reactionary uh, politics. That's like a, a smart guess. I don't, based on what I read, that's not quite right. The actual better answer is that the way that they distributed their funds was mostly to bet against Obama. In like anti-Obama ads. Oh, yeah, yeah. Not only was Obama, you know, very popular, he had even more money, way more money, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so even the Republican super PAC, it was over $100 million that they, they raised during that cycle, wasn't enough to compete with the Obama machine. Yeah. Anyway, we have to rate Robert Rowling. And- I have some ideas, but at this point, Chad, you know about a, as much about him as I do. Do you have any kind of feelings? Well, I mean, uh, you know, I guess I'm conflicted. Uh, you know, it's it's 2020, right? And being an extremely prominent and major Republican donor is different than it might have been in uh, 1986 or even 2000. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, like all of the pieces of the puzzle are there. And being a major Republican donor is being a donor for causes that run contrary to democracy and justice, right? Like that, that you are for that, for that reason alone, I don't think that we can give them a less than a seven. Wasn't it? Okay. Okay. I was, I was saying that'll take me up to five. 
You're going with seven. He's like arguably one of the architects of the situation that gave rise to. Oh, yeah. So he was he was in on the ground floor. That matters. I'm saying seven. I mean, how badly would you want to take his money away and make it someone else's money? Seven. That's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm good with seven. All right, Chad, so who are you dealing with today? I know we talked about him for a second in my in my segment, but what's his name? We did. Uh, well, I don't think we mentioned his name, though. Uh, <laughs> his name is Bradley Wayne Hughes, which sounds like an assassin of some sort. That sounds like three billionaires' names in a row. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, But he goes by Wayne. Wayne is the most famous billionaire name in the world of superheroes. Oh, I guess so. Well, I didn't really think about that. Is but there that, a more famous true. superhero yeah. billionaire? No. Well, yeah. No, I don't. I think you're correct about that. Um, yeah, I just, that's his, that's his first name. His last name is Hughes. Like Howard Hughes, another famous uh, rich person. You... May well have you heard his name before? Because it's possible. I know that you're no. a sports fan. Nope, but I'm not. You know, I'm not a nerd about it. Uh, only super nerds uh, would have heard of B. Wayne Hughes because it only he his name is only really important in California college level sports. Uh, but it is very important in California college level okay. sports, and and in fact, it it it's important in a scandal that I'm sure you've heard about, which is the USC admissions scandal. Yes, I am um, familiar yes. with that that scandal. Yeah. So he, he's been involved in USC athletics since the 1970s and mm. um, has been described uh, by some people as being more powerful than the president of the university at USC. Um, and he is the largest donor and, and it's USC. They have a lot of rich donors, right? Um, so he's a big uh, but guy. But he is the, he's the number one. Uh, donor to USC doesn't have a, we're going to, we're going to, I'm, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm putting the cart before the horse. Uh, let me just give you the quick biographical rundown. Yeah. Where did, where did Wayne come from? Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, this is part of his, his self mythologization. Uh, he consistently says that he is a sharecropper's son from Oklahoma who left the Dust Bowl for California. Uh, but the way that he got rich was in the 1970s, he began. Have you ever seen a public storage? Apparently, they have orange signs. Uh, it's a self storage company, but it's a massive I national, like I have. actually international chain. I feel like I have. They're they're very big in the north, northwest, and Canada. Uh, from what I understand, I live in Minnesota, but I've never seen one. Maybe uh, I have. Although I'm I I'll admit that I'm not looking out for uh, storage facilities, but it's like the biggest self storage company in the United States. Uh, it's a forty billion forty billion dollar company. So. One of the themes that we like to return to on this show is the theme of infrastructure. And I think that there's a really, I don't know if I have the ideas worked out totally, but I think that there's something to say at least about the historical coincidence of the beginning of the self-storage business and the, the advent of American hyper-consumerism. When I say hyper-consumerism, it's an annoying kind of academic word, but basically what I mean is consuming for consumption's sake itself. Just I just love to shop. Uh, and I think, that I, I think that most people, including me, associate that with a kind of switch to 
a post-Fordist regime of accumulation, I guess you could say, or a, a, a quicker way to, to say that is this kind of like deregulatory era of the late 1970s uh, and 1980s when the the perfect example, which is something that we talked about before in the Haim Saban mm. episode, is the deregulation of children's yeah, programming, right? Yeah. right? And so suddenly it's uh, the uh, television, children's television programming becomes this hyper capitalist space where everything, right? All of the cartoons that uh, we enjoyed as children, Transformers, He-Man, G.I. Joe, all of this stuff are uh, called PLCs, program length commercials, Mm. where the only objective, it's not, it's not the moral education of the populace or, or anything like that. Right. It's just uh, getting people to buy things. Like I, that's what I, th- I think of like He-Man uh, when I think of hyper-consumerism yeah. is like just children being indoctrinated into desiring a plastic piece of trash more than anything that they've ever desired <laughs> in their life, right? Like that, that it becomes the thing that they live or die by, just this child screaming, I need this thing so bad. I need Megatron so bad. And and so like I I associate hyperconsumerism with self-storage. And I'll tell you why. Well it seems like there's an obvious reason but why, but maybe um, Oh okay. yeah, yeah. Go I ahead. I mean, I don't know where where you're going, but it's just sort of like one would Imagine that a person living in equilibrium with their material possessions would be able to fit everything that they need and own in their home at any given time. But the idea, yes, that's the right. idea of having to overflow into an addition, additional rented annex space just to keep other shit is... I mean, makes that case, I think, yeah. pretty pretty well. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that you used the word shit. Uh, because I think that it's intimately related to um, waste disposal infrastructure, which I know that you're really uh, interested in. You know, not to get sidetracked here, uh, but just one more piece of biographical information about B. Wayne Hughes. He he lives in a 13,000 square foot uh, mansion in in Malibu. And uh, uh, so he's sort of he's very Californian in his in a in his vibe in a particular way. Two other like Californian things at the time. Uh, come to mind. One is Philip K. Dick in uh, Do Android Dream of Electric Sheep and this idea of kipple, right? That like the shit, the the junk of modern life just kind of like accumulates around us and there's nothing, like we're just constantly trying to like get it out of our area <laughs> to ch- organize, to get all the, the trash out of our space, right? Like this I've idea been working of- on my basement, man. This rings true. Like it's self-reproducing trash, right? Like, and, and it was a, you know, it was this great, like sort of critique of consumerism. And then the other one, of course, is the more obvious one is Marcuse. uh, And he wrote One Dimensional Man one year before he went to uh, UC San Diego. But the, uh, the, the basic point of one dimensional man. Uh, so uh, I wrote down a quote here. Um, and this is one of my favorite lines ever uh, is uh, in one dimensional man uh, right in the beginning. He says, uh, under the conditions of a rising standard of living, nonconformity with the system itself appears to be socially useless. And like, I, I love that idea, right? Because like the, the, the concept is that under a rising standard of living, when things are getting better in a material sense for a, 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 over a consistent, you know, sort of period of time, um, 
If you resist recognizing that, then you appear to be some sort of like neurotic Debbie Downer complainer, right? You're saying like people around you, look at all this fucking good stuff. Are you kidding me? Look at all of our good stuff. This just rings true on such a fundamental level with my upbringing. Just like given that was my, that was my Uh family, you know, and that was my environment. You know, I was in, I was in that eighties moment where people were like kids my age were worshiping He-Man and I wasn't allowed to have He-Man. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Because my parents rejected all of that and the way that they kept their home and the kinds of cars that they drove and the way that they appeared in public, like everything about the way that they were compared to the larger ecosystem of school and the place that I grew up in, it was incredibly embarrassing, you know, for exactly that, for (laughs) for exactly that reason, because it, or the social understanding was such that why would you live that way? You know? Yeah. What's wrong with you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the idea of one dimensional man is that the onslaught of consumer products of like, uh, Marcuse calls them a manufactured needs, right? Like uh, the, these desires and needs that get produced by marketing and then met by consumable products that serves this weird ideological function to prove that the system is working. Right. So it's like, look at all, look at all of this stuff people have that can't mean nothing. Right. Like it means that we're succeeding in some way, even though that like when you buy those products, especially when you're a kid, right. And you get the toy or whatever, like it's never satisfying. Right. Like as soon as you buy the thing, it becomes garbage in a, in a weird way. And then like it accumulates around you. And then eventually you know, you have this opposing impulse that, well, I, I also can't be wasteful, especially when it comes to money uh, and and getting suckered into buying a, a garbage fake product or whatever is like humiliating in American culture. And so like the storage facility provides this moral compromise <laughs> in between like you can satisfy your hyper consumerist desires, but you also don't have to feel like you got duped because you're not throwing the thing away. Yeah. You're putting it in a special place, right? And so like infrastructurally, the storage facility becomes a a site for managing it's a logistical management of emotions, right? Like that what you're doing is managing your own guilt. When you're talking about this, I'm just like wondering how deep this process really goes in our way of being in the world. And I haven't read the book. I just read a review of it or a headline about it a day or two ago. But have you heard about this this book Clean? That's just getting all of this press about this <laughs> no. guy. I mean, it's re- related to some other things that I'm interested in, but it's actually, I think, I don't know if it's a bestseller, but it's getting some buzz. And it's this guy who's basically researched the microbiomes of skin and his, again, I'm going out on a limb here because I haven't read the book, but my understanding of the argument is that he says that all of the products that we use and even showering itself is destroying the natural microbiomes that keep us healthy. And he's rejecting, he's rejecting showering. He doesn't shower. Well... I have done a little bit of reading about this because uh, I use those um, plastic puffs where you put body wash on like the the spherical puff thing. It's like a plastic loofah. Yeah. And my wife would make fun of me like, <laughs> you know, because she just uses soap. You know, she just like uses her hands and a bar of soap to shower. 
and and I like the puff. Um, <laughs> and I was like, well, okay, let's uh, let's empirically find out what's better. And so we started googling like ways to wash yourself and like you know what the cleanest and and best way was. And what I learned from doing that research is that, yeah, actually the best thing to wash yourself with when you're going to take a shower is just like your hands, like uh, uh, washcloths and puffs and all that shit. Like the exfoliating is actually really bad for so, but you. Isn't this crazy that like, like when you think about the techniques that we just take for granted as being healthy, like how deeply enmeshed they are and uh, that's a great point i mean the the classic one for me is the fucking food pyramid right like my whole life i was taught that the base of the food pyramid was grains right like eat a bunch of wheat was what, like that was what i learned for until like you know i don't know 12th grade or whatever i stopped having health class right yeah. like that the the main thing that you need to eat every day is wheat. Yeah. <laughs> it's like his his grain. And and then one day it just oh no, that's actually not true at all. In fact, that's the worst thing you can eat. And it's more or less the same as sugar. Basically, you're eating a candy bar when you're eating bread, which used to be the most important thing that you had to eat the most of every day. <laughs> now that's a candy bar. Well, I didn't mean to derail you. No, you didn't you didn't derail me. I mean, th that's that's all I have to say is that there's this like sort of there's a convergence between like Marcuse and B. Wayne Hughes in the sense that they both recognized a specific cultural phenomenon, which is uh hyperconsumption. People are just gonna keep buying regardless of how much space they have to put that shit in. Uh, but, you know, public storage is a really big company. It's a $40 billion company. But but uh, that's not really what put B. Wayne Hughes's wealth into the stratosphere. He started American Homes for Rent. So the interesting thing, uh, you know, actually about American Homes for Rent is that well, there are rental agencies. So you might think like Gold's Gym or, you know, or, or uh, other businesses uh, that rely on uh, people paying their expendable income that they would be doing poorly, but they're actually doing great. And in fact, they're growing right now uh, during the pandemic uh, because of a particular trend in the reorganization of American society that is going along with the pandemic. And that is that and, and I'm sure you've seen these articles that there's this kind of urban exodus happening. Mm. Like people are yeah. moving out of the cities because they don't want to live in highly population dense areas. And because a lot of people are finding and being asked uh, to work from home. Right. And so they don't need to live near where they work necessarily anymore. And so American Homes for Rent which is this place that rents single family homes uh, in the suburbs, uh, they buy up properties at foreclosure uh, auctions. Like that's how they get properties. And then they don't do any, you know, like they do a really shitty job of like refurbishing them and then they rent them out. Uh, they're doing really well, right? So like um, what they're doing is like, oh, well, there's a bunch of millennials who don't have any accumulated capital, but they want to get out of the city. And so they can't have a down payment for a home, uh, but they can rent a single family home. And that's where American Homes for Rent steps in to fill this new demand that has been created by the pandemic. Mm. And uh, there was a, a recent interview. In fact, I, I texted you about this because while yesterday, while I was doing research for this segment, I was Googling, you know, like American Homes for Rent, doing research on it. And the CEO of American Homes for Rent was interviewed 
on CN- CNBC during the period uh, when I was like uh, doing research, like, uh, you know, in real time. That seems rather unlikely. What a coincidence. Yeah, really weird. Um, there's a lot of stuff happening with the company right now. And I want to play this quick clip to sort of demonstrate how he thinks about the COVID pandemic. Okay. Now, you also reported about $6 million in COVID-related bad debt. That is tenants unable to pay. How are you dealing with those tenants? And what do you think about the recent eviction moratorium imposed by the CDC? Is that fair to landlords like yourself? So bad debts uh, for us uh, has a slight uptick. Uh, We've deliberately chosen the markets and neighborhoods that we are in and the weighted average unemployment for our portfolio is, is, is less than a national average. As such, we're seeing, um, in light of the uh, difficult times, we're seeing relatively favorable collection uh, results that are improving from our second quarter results. Um, evictions are always a last resort. Uh, and the eviction moratorium, while it has a temporary uh, impact, uh, long-term, uh, are, we're comfortable with our collections. And again, we'll use evictions only as a last resort. I don't know if it's clear from that, but what he's doing is telegraphing to investors that they will evict people, that they're not going to do a a, a touchy-feely, wishy-washy kind of, we will voluntarily impose an eviction moratorium on ourselves because uh, we are a a bleeding heart company. Uh, He is telling investors in this CNBC clip that we will evict people. Yes, it's a last resort and we feel terrible about it, but we will evict people uh, and we will maintain the 96.5% uh, occupancy uh, uh, rate that in our properties that we have been maintaining for a long time. And so please do not disinvest uh, in, in our company. Uh, and it, it sucks. In, uh, That's and, some cold uh, shit, man. Very cold. Very cold. Anyway... That's that's the story of his business ventures. And I know we've been talking for a while, but his his personal adventures have been very interesting as well. So there's not much out there because Hughes never does interviews. Um, he uh, did one interview that I could find and it's by the, the journalist John Ronson. Uh, he's a British journalist. He wrote the, the psychopath test. Oh, yeah. He does a lot of stuff with uh, rich people. Um, he's, he's funny. Um, and this one he wrote it. So he, he didn't want to interview Hughes, uh, because he was B Wayne Hughes. Uh, he wanted to interview him only because of the amount of income that he had, because he, he was doing this kind of experimental article where he wanted to interview people at different scales of income. So he started with somebody making $10,000 and then you quintuple that, talk to somebody making $50,000, quintuple that. And so the last level of quintupling was, uh, B Wayne. Hughes and it was something like how to live on, you know, the, the article section was called like how to live on $678,000 a day or something like that. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, and so for whatever reason, I maybe Hughes was entertained by the concept of the article, but he agreed to do an interview uh, for this. And there are some real gems in here that give you some insight into who B. Wayne Hughes is. We already know. Yeah, let's hear it. He donates to, a lot to American Crossroads, but he, uh, he makes his opinion on taxation very very clear. Uh, so I thought I'd read a, a quick quote. This is him talking to Ronson in an interview. That sounds good. Uh, Wayne says, uh, or, or Hughes says, 
Um, I live my life paying my taxes and taking care of my responsibilities, and I'm a little surprised to find out that I'm an enemy of the state at this time in my life. Ronson writes, he has big a big booming voice like an old school billionaire, not one of those nerdy new billionaires. Has anyone said that to your face? <laughs> I ask him. <laughs> Nobody has to, says Wayne. Just watch what they're doing. You mean the Occupy Wall Street crowd? Ronson asks. Those guys are a bunch of jerks, Wayne mutters, giving a dismissive wave that says they're just a sideshow. Politically, I'm on the enemies list. <laughs> I've saved, I've lived my whole life doing what I thought was right, and now I'm an enemy of the state. So He's a billionaire and he sees Occupy Wall Street on television. This is a few years ago, obviously. And he and he thinks that that means that he's an enemy of the state. It's very confusing. You know, all of that is very confusing. It doesn't seem like he's super clear about who Occupy Wall Street is. Or who the state is or what is really going on in the world. I mean, I guess from his sort of like fever, like Fox News fever dream point of view, Obama was controlled at the time by Occupy Wall Street thugs. I think that that's pretty much how the narrative was back then. <laughs> that's right. So, you know, the, there's another part, there's another part of this article that gives us a, like a real window into B. Wayne Hughes's mindset um, and like in a really literal kind of way. Lay it on us. So Ronson is 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 doing this like this interview and and uh uh Hughes mentions this book Dr. Hudson's Secret Journal and he kind of like passes over it and Ronson's like oh okay cool I'll check it out and then he kind of forgets about it and then like he brings it up again and and Ronson's like that's really important to you and he's like yes and he's like he's like that's my entire life's philosophy and like can you know he he convinces Ronson that it's like something he needs to read, and so uh, this is Ronson's uh, paragraph describing uh, getting the book, uh, Doctor Hudson's Secret Journal. And so I order it from some secondhand book place. It's out of print. It arrives ancient and battered. It's kind of pulpy. The story of a Doctor Hudson who encounters a mysterious gravestone engraver named Randolph. Quote. I now have everything I want and can do anything I wish, Randolph tells the doctor. So can you. So can anybody. All you have to do is follow the rules. Randolph hands Dr. Hudson a magic page upon which is written the secret, the rules for generating that mysterious power that I mentioned. You can imagine, this is Ronson again, you can imagine how excited I am when I get to this part of the novel. But the secret turns out to be underwhelming. It is this. If you perform anonymous good deeds, greatness will visit you. But the philanthropy must be carried out with absolute secrecy. That's the key. When I reread my B. Wayne Hughes transcript, <laughs> I see that it's peppered with veiled references to the teachings of Dr. Hudson's secret journal. So, like, you, you might think that Ronson is maybe exaggerating here or whatever, but I did find another article about Hughes that. Uh, in which a doctor at the Mayo Clinic who he had, so his son had leukemia and died. And so one of the major uh, philanthropic causes that he gave to, uh, and so far it's been 70 million, this is an important figure, $70 million over the course of his lifetime so far to childhood cancer research. That's significant. Uh, they interviewed a doctor who he had worked with and she related an extremely similar story. It was a different book, but by the same author and it had the same moral. And so I think that, this author wrote a number of books that had this same moral 
And I think they're young adult books. I think they're for children. And uh, and this guy, B. Wayne Hughes, is obsessed with them. And so, okay, I, I want you to hear how B. Wayne Hughes talks about philanthropic giving. Uh, so this is Ronson again. He says, uh, when I asked Wayne which charities he donates to, he said, I have over the years supported charities. Then he fell mysteriously silent. Then he said, if you talk about things you've done that you think are worthwhile, you subtract from yourself. And so therefore, I will only say my principal charity is children's cancer, and I've been doing it for 22 years. Ronson says, you don't want to say how much you've given away? And uh, Wayne says, I don't want to subtract from my pleasure. I especially don't want it written up. It would be a disaster for me. It would hurt me. Why? I asked. Uh, and Wayne says, it would subtract from me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Very weird language. It would su subtract from me. It would subtract from my pleasure. Uh, in that other, <laughs> uh, in, um, in 2006, he donated money for a new basketball arena at USC, and he named it after a friend instead of naming it after himself. Uh, and when a reporter asked him why he did that, he said, the joy I have in remembering Jim, who he named the state, uh, arena after, the joy I have in remembering Jim would be significantly reduced if people knew who I was. Right? So- so he wants to be a secret giver because it's he gives him pleasure to give in it secret. It gives him pleasure, right? And it's a, and the pleasure is a thing that he accrues. And if he tells people about it, he loses some of that, right? And so it's like it's like he's doing a transaction. He's giving money for his personal pleasure, but he loses that pleasure if he tells anybody. It's like it's a very weird and twisted psychological game that he's playing with himself. Well, I, no, I mean I think I, I I have a window into it though. I mean I think like. Some of these billionaires do become sort of addicted to giving. And if you if you sort of convince yourself that you're an even better person if you do it secretly and that's a sort of higher morality, then I'm sure there's a like a dopamine hit. Yeah. Yeah. Every time. you. Well, OK, there there is that. Right. Like and, and I, I think that's part of it. But he's saying this in an interview with a reporter. Right. Like. Oh yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I take all of that no, back. No, no. What am no, I thinking? I mean, like, did he think he was off the record? No, I mean, no, yeah. no. Cause like no. if he, if he didn't think he was off the record, but even if he's not off the record, even if he's not off the record, if he's telling people, then people know, right? Like, yeah, so, no, like, I'm completely dumb. In the, in the, no, no, you're not dumb. I, like it took me a, a minute to realize that too. And it was like, <laughs> you're doing the subtracting from yourself right now by telling him what you did. Right. Like, um, and he, 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 he keeps doing this all the time. He keeps telling people the same mythology about how you have to give anonymously. And then he tells them what he gives to He told them right there. I gave the children's cancer. He's like, that's my principal charity. And people know how much he gave, right? Like, as I said before, he has given $70 million. He has something like $5 billion. His daughter has like 6 billion. They have a lot. He didn't give that much. So he actually wants people to know, but he wants people to think that he doesn't want them to know. That's right. That's exactly right. He He's trying to have his cake and eat it, too. I know who it is. It's Ted. Ted is anonymous. What are you, kidding? No. Isn't that great? He donated the whole wing. He didn't want anybody to know. Well, he told you. So he apparently wanted somebody to know. He told me, okay? Who else did he tell? How do you know he just told you? No. 
The point is, he didn't eat all the fanfare and didn't eat a Fanfare? What fanfare? I don't like the fanfare. Are you saying I like fanfare? You can tell a few people. He just doesn't need the whole world to know that he donated all this oh, money. You know what? I didn't need the world to know either. Nobody told me that I could be anonymous and tell people. I would have taken that option, okay? You can't have it halfway. You're either anonymous or you're not. What is it? Well, that is on point. <laughs> yeah, right. No, it's, it's exactly the same dynamic. Uh, so he's given $70 million to childhood cancer. And that's good. You know, like that's like um, if you had $5,000 and you gave $70 uh, to children's cancer, that would be good. It's not nothing. It's good. Uh, but he's given $400 million, uh, which he doesn't talk about as much, to USC Athletics. And basically... USC Athletics has been supported by his giving for a really long time. Why is he so into it again? He, I, I actually don't know. But he has been friends with famous USC football players since the 1970s. He's, he's very uh, public about that. That doesn't subtract from his goodness. It's the same sort of thing. So, like, he got Lynn Swan, the ex-Pittsburgh Steeler from the 70s, hired, who was also played at USC. He got him hired as the athletic director at USC when he had no business being an athletic director, no experience, uh, no no experience managing or uh, doing any sort of like program direction, never worked at a university or had anything to do that would did anything that would qualify him to do the job. It was a big controversy when he got hired. And it turns out Lynn Swan has been like best friends with B. Wayne Hughes since the 1970s. And the reason that everybody, the open secret was that the reason that Lynn Swan got hired uh, was to please uh, B. Wayne Hughes. And and then uh, after three years, uh, Lynn Swan had to <laughs> had to leave because he was very bad at his job uh, and got caught up in the USC admissions scandal where they were oh, wow. pretending okay. that students were athletes to get them into school, that they were uh, athletics recruits, even though they weren't. And yeah. they, the like the the people, the the coaches took a lot of money and bribes. <laughs> like, um, wow. Yeah. Uh, millions of dollars. Well, that's not good. No. Um. So. So. Yeah. It's very funny. He's like very good friends with Lynn Swan, uh, Marcus Allen, uh, another name you might know from football. Uh, two other names mm -hmm. that you might know. Uh. Uh. A. C. Cowlings and uh, O. J. Simpson. <laughs> um, I do know O. J. Simpson. Well, uh, you know A. C. Cowlings too, uh, because he was the guy who was riding with O. J. Simpson in the Bronco, uh, during the police chase. Um, oh really? Yeah, and uh, people don't talk about AC uh, very much these days. Uh, and I saw I saw those like there was like two OJ documentaries yeah. that came out like five years yeah, ago. Yeah. Like one was like with John Travolta, yeah. like a yeah, docudrama, yeah. and then there was the actual OJ documentary. That yeah, I think yeah. It, was on, it all happened at once. It did. If you talked to me about this at the time, I'm sure I would have remembered. AC, what's his name? AC, AC Collins. Uh, C O W L A N G S. Anyway, so how does he know OJ? How did, or how did, From what's, USC. What's I mean, I he oh, was I just really good friends with USC football players. Um, so he was in his corner later during the murder oh, trial. Oh man, and you have no idea. I did want to. I did want to say just up front that currently AC Collins, who's seventy-two years old, uh, works for Hughes and lives in a guest house on his Malibu estate. <laughs> so like, they're, You're kidding. No, they're still like very close. Um, Hughes was the first person, the first report of uh, Nicole Brown Simpson being beaten by 
O.J. Simpson. She, in 1982, she showed up at B. Wayne Hughes's house saying O.J. had beat her and she needed help. Hughes did not testify at the trial, even though it was earlier than the first reported incident of abuse, uh, because uh, Judge Lance Ito deemed it hearsay. And uh, for some reason, you know, he wouldn't let him testify. Uh, not that he didn't want to testify. Like Hughes would only testify. He, he was on O.J.'s side. He needed to be compelled to testify. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I see. Uh, he became the legal guardian of O.J.'s kids or like the, the legal. He got power of attorney over their estate. Uh, while, what? So he was like deep in yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, in um, in uh, Kardashian's um, uh, book about the trial. I think it was Kardashian. Somebody's uh, book about the, the trial. They were like, Hughes was trying to run the entire defense team. We couldn't like get him to shut up. And he was trying to control everything. Um, he was, yeah, he was like intimately involved. He sued Nicole Brown Simpson's parents for $200,000 after they sold Nicole Brown Simpson's diaries to the national Enquirer. uh, uh, pr- I think to pay for legal costs and Hughes sued them on behalf of the children for, for the money that they got for their dead daughter's diaries from the national what? Enquirer. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, yeah. Really, really not good. Um, oh my God. That is wild. I think we got to rate this guy, man. He's at least a seven. Yeah, I mean, he's so personally repulsive in terms of his opinions, the way that he talks, uh, just the fact that he will like be OJ's pit bull is really weird. Like <laughs> make get him a point. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. kind of kind of go got to just yeah. I'm just getting an 8 vibe. It's always a little bit of apples and oranges, but I like the number 8. It's it's uh it feels right to me. All right, everyone. Thanks for hanging out to the very end of another show. As always, we are going to take a moment here and spin our random billionaire selector so that we have homework and uh, focus for our next episode. So we're going to spin and and pick two billionaires. Chad, are you ready with your little machine over there? Uh, I'm getting there. All right. Oh, wow. Our first one is way, way, way down the list. Probably a newly minted billionaire uh, at number 589 out of just 619 billionaires. We've got Safra Katz. Safra, a uh, one of the few female billionaires on our list. Uh, she is the CEO of Oracle. Um, and okay. uh, she actually only became the CEO this month. That's kind of crazy. Her Forbes profile was just updated. She became CEO oh, last month in September. Okay. That's interesting. Let's let's spin it again and see who else we got. All right. Our second billionaire this time is oh, fairly high on the list for the second one. One number 166. Uh, and that is Alejandro Santo Domingo made his fortune in beer. 
That sounds interesting. <laughs> okay, what do you want? I don't care. Uh, who do I want? I mean, well, I I think that I mean you're a little you're more of an alcohol expert than I am. Um, and he, uh, Alejandro Santo Domingo sits on the board of beer giant Anheuser Busch InBev. I'll research this guy. This company is so big. He has a one point seven five percent stake, and he's a billionaire. <laughs> InBev would be funny to or fun to. Uh... To learn more about, I'll do. I'll do that guy. All right, I'll do the other one whose name I already forget. Uh, oh, CEO of Oracle. Cats. Yeah, yeah. All right, I'm excited. Thanks again for listening, everybody. If you get a chance to like and subscribe and write reviews and give us some stars, that would be great. But otherwise, just try to like stay healthy. Center yourself. What are you saying? Center yourself. These are disorienting times. Center yourself. Yeah, get centered. Yeah, if you can. We'll try to get centered too and we'll be back next month with another episode bye